Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight is July 5th of 2012, and tonight our guest is Dr. Philip Flores, the author of Addiction as an Attachment Disorder. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, and our book is called uh, How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon, and for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest tonight is Dr. Philip Flores. Um, his book is Addiction as an Attachment Disorder. He's here with us right now. Dr. Flores, how are you doing this evening? Uh, good. Um, thanks for having me on the show, Ken. Well, thanks for coming here. Tell us a little bit, what is attachment theory for people who've never heard of this before? Okay, let me see if I can put it into a nutshell here. It's um, it's a theory about um, relationships, uh, and it's a theory about uh, how uh, uh, early attachments and attachments or relationships throughout life uh, have um, an impact on the way that uh, uh, the brain uh, develops and uh, the way that the uh, brain uh, uh, makes uh, adaptations um, uh, based on its experiences and the environmental uh, impact that um, uh, relationships are uh, having on the, the person and their brain. Is there a particular period of development when uh, these attachment things tend to get set uh, well, yes. No, it's um, um, probably also important to know that uh, the um, uh, father of attachment theory is uh, somebody named uh, John John Bowlby. Uh, he was a psychoanalyst from London and uh, originally trained as an analyst and broke a, a little bit with the uh, uh, the Tavistock uh, uh, psychodynamic people because um, he was focused more on looking at uh, actual um, behavior and uh, and looking at uh, the way uh, children develop. So it, it comes out of a, an early developmental model um, and uh, how early experiences with the primary caregivers um, uh, uh, shape and sculpt uh, the developing brain and how it affects the uh, neurobiology and the neurophysiology of brain development. Uh, attachment theory has shifted that it isn't so much a psychological uh, theory um, as it is uh, a biological theory. And is there some empirical evidence, uh, some observations that were made of children and their parents and what sorts of attachment they have? Uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of them. Uh, just let me uh, uh, just add this addendum onto your question because um, I, I don't want to forget it. Uh, I'll uh, in a second talk about uh, some of the empirical um evidence and research on uh, child uh, development and infant uh, development, but 
these um, uh, studies uh, were first initiated by a, a student of uh, Bowie's called, uh, and her name was Mary Ainsworth, and uh, they're called the Ainsworth Strange Situation Studies. And, and they started collecting data on this in about the late 50s, early 60s. So we got a half a century of, um, of research, and there's literally been thousands of, of, of different um, uh, repetitions of this uh, attachment um, uh, paradigm uh, that I'll describe in a minute. And it's been uh, done in uh, Europe and uh, Asia and even in Africa and, and the U.S. Um, but the one important uh, addendum that I want to speak to, um, briefly at least, is that uh, they now have the opportunity to follow these attachment styles that uh, get set early in uh, infancy and early childhood, and they are having these subjects now that are 30, 40, 50 years old, and they are uh, following the, uh, them as adults, and they're uh, finding that there's a consistency with the way that the uh, attachment styles uh, get uh, established early in infancy and that they are uh, somewhat uh, can be resistant to, to change in that your attachment style as an infant uh, in 70 some percent of the cases stays the same as it is when you're adult and if you stop to think about it uh, from the perspective that attachment early attachment uh, is not uh, just a psychological process it's a, a neurobiological regulation process that literally sculpts and wires the brain and it shapes how the brain will develop. And so these um, neural networks that get uh, established uh, are actual physiological processes. And so um, it's going to take uh, uh, some um, pretty uh, significant repetitive uh, types of events uh, and experiences to change those because you're actually uh, having to change uh, the person's uh, neurophysiology and neurobiology. Now, what are the different attachment styles? Okay. Uh, there's basically uh, four of them. And um, uh, these classifications, as I said earlier, have been... Um, done in, uh, in thousands of studies, and the findings come out consistently across different cultures. And there's uh, one basic secure style, which I'll um, uh, describe to you in a, in a second, that's uh, referred to as uh, secure attachment. And that, um, then there's uh, three um, insecure attachment styles, and they have their own particular dynamics. And the three are um, uh, avoidant attachment style, um, ambivalent or um, preoccupied attachment style, and then the disorganized attachment style. The, um, the way that the percentages have consistently um, 
broken down across um, thousands of these studies with uh, uh, just about uh, every uh, westernized uh, uh, culture in the world is that 60% of, um, of children, infants, uh, come out of uh, early development with uh, a secure attachment, meaning by age five or six, this pattern's pretty much set. And uh, so more than half. Uh, of the other uh, 40% are scattered among those three different insecure attachment style. About 20% uh, percent of uh, individuals fall into this avoidant attachment style. 15% fall into this uh, ambivalent or preoccupied attachment style. And then the last category of disorganized attachment style is about uh, uh, 5%. Okay, when we look at secure attachment, uh, the the biggest category, um, what's the relationship between the uh, infant, the young child, and the mother or the caregiver figure that characterizes secure attachment? Well, um, one uh, uh, big, um, or I guess two important factors is uh, uh, the... Um, mental health of the mother, how securely attached the mother is. And then uh, the um, uh, the temperament of the child, because part of what um, uh, determines all this is the uh, particular uh, uh, kind of, a, of um, emotional temperament that uh, uh, newborn infants have. Some are more responsive, uh, some are um, more... Um, um, brittle or hyperactive, um, uh, and that uh, when there's a good match between a, a, a securely attached mother, uh, that usually uh, uh, means that her brain has been wired in a, a, a very efficient way, and usually she's in a supportive relationship with uh, uh, a spouse who's uh, also uh, probably uh, securely attached uh, uh, so that uh, she has her own support system with him and that uh, they, um, um, in some ways, usually the husband is helping provide um, this kind of um, emotional regulation for her, which she is then able to provide for the infant. Now, um, troubles arise when you have... Um, uh, a mother that comes into the uh, relationship with uh, her own insecure attachment style, which often means she's had some neglect or some trauma or um, in, in um, very um, troubling circumstances. She has her own history of physical abuse or, or sexual abuse, um, and she's uh, with a husband that's um, either an alcoholic or addict himself or abusive himself, uh, and um, or there's a lot of um, poverty and stress going on in their life, um, no jobs, low socioeconomic status, or she's a single mother or a young single mother. And um, there's also evidence um, now that uh, even during the last trimester of pregnancy um, that uh, a child's uh, brain and his neurophysiology is being 
uh, shaped by the uh, mother's experience, even while the child's in the womb. So that adds some to the um, predictability or the potential of whether the uh, child's temperament is going to be a, a good one or a poor one. But when you have the nice match uh, between the mother, uh, the father, the uh, the uh, social environment uh, uh, and the uh, temperament of the child, things usually uh, work out um, uh, pretty well to um, lead to uh, the uh, strong potential that you'll have a, a securely attached uh, um, infant that will grow into a securely attached adult. Okay. In your book, you talk about Ainsworth's research on what's called the strange situation. What is the strange situation, and uh, how does someone who's securely attached, how does a securely attached infant act in that situation? Okay. Um, the strange uh, situation is essentially this is a paradigm. You uh, get a mother, and usually you have uh, the infant anywhere from 10 months to a year and a half. And they uh, have the mother and an infant uh, introduced uh, and put into a strange room. And there's a couple chairs there, and there's a um, two-way mirror and uh, where the observers can watch them. And then there's toys for the child, some balls and jacks and dolls and things like that. And the mother and the child spend uh, a little bit of time in that room by themselves, and then a stranger enters the room. Shortly after the stranger enters the room, the mother gets up and leaves the uh, small infant with the stranger. They then observe how uh, the, the child reacts uh, to that situation. And uh, usually most infants will, um, at that age, will protest and start crying and crawl to the door and want their mother. And then the mother will return to the room and then they uh, watch to see how the, uh, what they call the reunion. Can the mother uh, uh, pick up the child, soothe the child quickly? Will the child be receptive to the mother's attempt to soothe the child? If, um, if all that goes well during the reunion, uh, that gives you a, a, a pretty good um, idea of about uh, uh, what um, is normal, healthy development that uh, uh, is giving you an, an indication that the uh, child has, uh, has learned and grown to trust the mother as a figure that um, uh, the child knows that um, she or he can turn to and that the, the mother will usually be a responsive so that there's been a, a repetition of um, of this pattern of the mother comforting the child and the child uh, allowing uh, him or herself to be comforted by the mother, which uh, uh, strongly indicates that that is a pattern that's been going on in that child's life. So that's basically the, um, the strange situation. There's one thing that a, a, a little um, maybe antidote that I'll... Um, add on to this, which may uh, um, help il illustrate this. Um, 
there's uh, something that I I write about in my book somewhere where I um, I talk about the paradox of attachment, and I uh, follow that by saying, secure attachment liberates. And what I mean by that, the, the more securely attached that uh, a child is, the less that a child will need uh, the, the constant attention and the constant presence of, of the mother in the room. They can uh, researchers can almost immediately tell how securely attached a child is when they uh, observe the mother and the infant as they're being introduced into the room. And if in a few minutes that uh, small infant starts to explore the strange room and goes farther away from the mother in the exploration, the more securely attached children will take more risk in exploring and exploring out further. The uh, insecurely attached children will stay closer to the mother and will not do as much exploration. Now, if... Well, we have time, and we do get to some questions about how that uh, might have an application to, um, uh, say, psychotherapy or treatment. What it speaks to, and uh, this gets into a whole other realm of uh, parallel research that has a lot of, of uh, uh, similar implications for it, and this gets into what uh, we um, psychotherapists call the... Uh, the therapeutic alliance, which is the uh, the strength of the bond between the uh, the client or the patient and the therapist. When uh, a, a client or a patient feels securely attached to their therapist and uh, uh, trust them and uh, have grown to uh, become fond of them, and, and uh, there is a, a strong bond between the two of them, the more uh, securely attached that, say, the patient or client is to the therapist, the more, uh, the stronger the secure base. And like those infants, the more risk that um, a patient or client will take in exploring their inner world or exploring uh, their uh, own life. Uh, So uh, the whole idea of uh, feeling safe and secure and uh, emotionally held by somebody leads us to not need them constantly as, as much. Okay. Now, I'm going to go back to this strange situation and ask you, what do we see in the cases of insecure attachment of the avoidant, ambivalent, and disorganized attachment? How do these infants react in this situation? Um. Well, let me um, describe that uh, to you, and I'm, uh, I'm also wanting to uh, expand your question to how do then these play out with adults, because this is uh, uh, where, where I think this theory has important, um, uh, very important implications, because this isn't just about uh, uh, a child development. This is... Uh, uh, how adults manage their relationships um, uh, when they grow up and why uh, they're going to be uh, vulnerable to develop one addictions, 
why they're going to have continual relational difficulties, why they're going to have uh, trouble uh, maintaining friendships, why they're going to have uh, difficulty having successful marriages, even uh, successfully manage um, their careers and jobs, because these things have far-reaching implications for how uh, people are in the world uh, with uh, bosses, spouses, friends. So uh, uh, so I want to make sure we just don't talk about uh, infants here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, maybe the way that I, I can answer this is by uh, uh, first speaking about adults, and then we can uh, weave this back to the children. Don't with the avoidant attachment style. Uh, you um, and, and this is um, um, an attachment pattern that is highly represented with addictions. In that. Avoidance uh, 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 don't like to allow people to get too close to them emotionally. And they uh, definitely do not like uh, uh, relying on others to care for them. Uh, They don't trust it. Uh, They don't, uh, they think, uh, they feel that they're leaving themselves vulnerable to be uh, either uh, uh, taken advantage of or to or to be uh, abandoned so they learned early that uh, the mother uh, can be counted on uh, to uh, not be there um, and be available for them um, and maybe a, a short uh, clinical example of this for anybody out there as a therapist or has been in a a therapy group. Um, uh, I had a, a man in one of my uh, groups talking about his uh, his mother who had a bipolar disorder, and he was also a recovering alcoholic and addict. But he, he was talking about how chaotic that she was, that he could not, uh, as a child, trust that uh, if and if he needed anything, and if he went to her, that she would help that his experience was that she would usually make things worse. Now, this stuff gets imprinted and wired into our neural networks, and this is his style with uh, uh, all people in his life, and he's had a lot of uh, trouble with uh, two failed marriages and relationships because he keeps uh, uh, people that care for him at a distance and doesn't uh, turn them for any kind of uh, comfort. As he was talking about this in group, another woman who grew up in a very similar home with a very similar um, mother, I remember she looked at him and said, I know what you're uh, saying. Just like you, I learned early that help ain't coming. These people become very self-efficient, and they're uh, always um, uh, making sure that uh, they're uh, uh, not relying on others to give them any kind of emotional support. Now, uh, I, I want to say one other thing about this that I think uh, broadens this whole uh, uh, discussion. You know, the, 
uh, the neurosciences are now, um, and, and modern attachment theory is now getting into neuroimaging of the brain. We can actually look in the brain, and we can put people under the scanners, and we can see what happens uh, to certain parts of the limbic system and, and frontal lobes like this. What uh, and there's lots of research to support uh, oh, what I'm going to tell you. Um, the uh, evidence is real clear right now that our central nervous systems are not uh, closed systems. We have uh, our our central nervous systems are uh, open uh, emotional systems. We uh, need other people in order to keep us regulating. It is impossible to completely r regulate ourselves and stabilize our central nervous system without having people in our lives. And that's what a secure attachment people are able to do. The, uh, there, there's two basic uh, uh, ways that we keep ourselves emotionally regulated. One is through self-regulation. And the other is through uh, interactive or interpersonal re regulation. There's a lot of healthy forms of of, of self-regulation, exercise, yoga, um, things uh, that therapists are teaching people, like mindfulness training, which is drawing in some of the uh, of the teachings from the uh, Buddhist tradition. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, of unhealthy ways of keeping ourselves regulated. And that's uh, when people start turning to uh, other sources of regulation, like drugs, drinking. Um, um, you know, drugs can be licit or illicit. Uh, they can be prescribed by physicians. Uh, or uh, people can get into uh, any of the process addictions, like sex addiction gambling addiction, shopping addiction, food addiction. These all fall into this category of people's attempt to regulate themselves without turning to others for help and regulation. Since there's a limit to how much we can regulate ourselves and we need uh, other people to uh, keep us regulated, this is the way that uh, evolution designed our, civil, our central nervous system as an open, open feedback loop. So if we aren't getting ourselves regulated from others, we have avoidance attachment styles, we have disorganized attachment styles, we have the uh, ambivalent attachment styles, uh, we're not able to form satisfying regulating relationships with other people. We then uh, put ourselves at risk to uh, develop a lot of different uh, psychopathologies, but also primarily to de develop uh, the addictions. So uh, uh, we're, um, uh, if we're not getting ourselves re regulated with people the way that uh, evolution designed us to, we're going to have to find other sources, and many of them end up being uh, addictive. Okay. What are the implications of attachment theory for psychotherapy? Well, the, um, uh, there's a number of them. One, a couple I have mentioned. One I just mentioned about the uh, the importance of um, of helping uh, 
patients, clients, um, whether they're addicted or not, learn how to um, uh, turn to others to get um, um, interactive regulation, to allow people to um, uh, tolerate people uh, caring for them or responding to them, and to discover that if they talk with somebody uh, in an emotionally open, honest way, that uh, and if that uh, person that they're talking to is sensitive and empathic, they uh, will discover, often to their surprise, that they'll start to calm down. Um, um, a mentor of mine, uh, Paul Ornstein, once said, being understood as an adult is the same as being held as an infant. So this uh, capacity to um, uh, turn to others and to f- uh, discover that uh, uh, there are people out there that uh, uh, can be trusted and uh, learn the ways that we are uh, not allowing people to give to us or sabotaging or refusing to uh, uh, let people in uh, close to us, um, how all that uh, 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 combines to contribute to to our isolation. And if there's anything that's um, uh, true about addiction, uh, addiction is a, a disease of isolation. Isolation is also one of the biggest uh, uh, stressors as far as its impact on the brain. And that, uh, um, matter of fact, that when they do animal studies, if they want to uh, uh, measure the uh, stress hormone, a cortisol, in, in say, um, lab rats, what they do is isolate them. And just like uh, a lab rats, people in isolation, their cortisol levels will uh, uh, shoot to the top. And with a strong, steady um, level of cortisol, uh, we start to have atrophy in our frontal lobes, in our hippocampus, which is required for uh, memory and executive function. We also then uh, start to have uh, complications with our, our amygdala and our um, our um, limbic system, which means we're going to uh, feel uh, feelings much more intensely. Uh, we're going to become what uh, Robert Sapolsky calls high-stress responders, which means little things will trigger an intense emotional reaction to us, will uh, shoot uh, way up on the high, on the cortisol level and the stress level, will stay um, at that stress level a, a lot longer. It takes more time to return to baseline. And um, so that whole process um, of um, of having our um, ourselves isolated, having our, our brain flooded with cortisol, trying to medicate uh, that with uh, alcohol or drugs, just exacerbates that whole process. Because as as far as the brain is concerned, cortisol, which uh, back to the stress, cortisol and ethanol are the same thing. Uh, it uh, so you put um, an alcoholic or someone that drinks heavily under enough stress, and it's like they've already had that first drink. So um, the um, there's a lot of 
implications for um, what all this has for a psychotherapy and uh, a forming a therapeutic alliance, uh, helping uh, people be able to uh, uh, take the uh, implicit learning that comes out of the relationship uh, with a group or with a therapist and then being able to to transfer that uh, to their relationships uh, outside um, in the real world, in their real life. Do you find that adults can be successful at changing their attachment style from insecure to secure attachment? Absolutely. I mean, this whole uh, um, emerging area of neuroplasticity and neurogenesis is the uh, the biggest thing to hit the neurosciences in the last 15 years. You know, the, the, uh, the old... Uh, 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 explanation and the old dogma was, and this was as, as recently as 15, 20 years ago, that the brain is an undividing organ. You are born with so many billions of brain cells, and all you do is lose them, and that you don't generate any new uh, neural networks and new brain cells. That has been totally uh, debunked uh, with the uh, uh, the new imaging techniques and the uh, electromicroscopes and the animal studies and the child development studies, uh, it's clear now that the brain does generate a new neurons. Uh, the brain is very plastic, uh, and the brain can still be uh, shaped and influenced by uh, ongoing experiences. And one of the best ways to uh, uh, induce uh, neuroplasticity um, Neurogenesis is in strong attachment relationships. They just uh, uh, seem to uh, uh, turn on a lot of, uh, of, uh, of uh, neural networks, a lot of uh, release of uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factors, uh, a lot of uh, uh, oxytocin, which is a love molecule, um, and uh, there's just a, a whole lot that can be uh, uh, done with uh, uh, the brain. Now, in certain cases, though, um, if a person is um, an alcoholic or an addict and they're uh, 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 drinking uh, or drugging alcoholically, uh, addictively, there's no way that uh, uh, the um, any kind of uh, new experiences can, uh, and especially relationships, can have any effect on neuroplasticity or neurogenesis because the um, the uh, uh, neutralizing effects from the toxicity of the chemical you, you just uh, um, shortchange that whole process. And uh, this is like with what um, you know, AA has, uh, for instance, has always. Um, uh, emphasize that uh, uh, you first have to get the alcohol to stop drinking before uh, there can be any uh, uh, progress in uh, in uh, any kind of recovery. Now, when I talk about alcoholics and addicts, I'm not talking about substance users and substance abusers, and that's where the main confusion has uh, has dominated this field uh, is lumping everybody into this. Uh, one category, um, and AA, for instance, even uh, has said that a lot of heavy drinkers are not necessarily alcoholic, and so addiction doesn't have much to do with uh, how much you use or when you drink or 
what else you use. It uh, has to do with what happens to the brain, and it's real clear now, again, from neuroimaging studies and animal studies, they can look into and see what happens to certain vulnerable brains. And uh, there are neural adaptations that happen in the uh, the limbic uh, diacephalic area that uh, certain people, uh, once those brain adaptations make, uh, or are made, they cannot be reversed. So this whole uh, position for this certain portion of population that once an addict or an alcoholic, always an addict, an alcoholic, because their brain has been uh, altered. They've uh, crossed this, uh, this uh, uh, shadowy line uh, that uh, now isn't so shadowy since there's uh, evidence now uh, identifying what the uh, neural pathways are being altered. So the whole um, uh, uh, idea of, of treatment and the conflict between harm reduction, moderation management, and abstinence-based has been clouded by the fact that uh, a lot of uh, well-meaning people lump them all into one category. And uh, uh, substance users and abusers, they can... Uh, 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 learn or go back to uh, moderate use. Once you, uh, your, your brain has made that switch and that adaptation, the addicted brain uh, becomes uh, uh, biologically different than the non-addictive brain. And those um, individuals uh, are the ones that uh, have to maintain uh, abstinence because uh, uh, their brain is no longer like the non-addictive brain. Well, our approach on our program, we're called HAMS, and the acronym stands for Harm Reduction, Abstinence, and Moderation Support. And we support any positive change from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And we always ask people, you know, what works best for you? Does quitting work best? Does cutting back work best? If you can't quit, can you be safer? So we encourage people to find a solution that will work best for them and to pursue it. Right. That's that's wise. Well, we're about running out of time, but before we leave, tell us uh, again the name of your book and where, what your website is. It's um, Addiction as an Attachment Disorder. Um, if you... Uh, um, Google that in into um, uh, what's the website? Um, um, oh, uh, escape me now. Um, to Amazon. Amazon. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you'll find it. And uh, if you get online uh, and uh, find my my uh, website, actually you can just put in my name to get to my website. Philip J. Flores, Ph.D. Uh, or you can. Uh, put in Atlanta Group Therapy. Either one will get you to my website. Okay, Dr. Dr. Flores, I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening. Okay, thank you, Ken. And everyone, come back on Wednesday next week. Uh, we're going to have an early show at 12 noon because our guest is coming to us from Amsterdam, so we don't want to interview him at 3, 3 a.m. his time, so we're going to do an early show. It's uh, Mark, Dr. Mark Lewis, who is the author of Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, and I look forward to seeing you all then, and everyone, good night.
Thank you.